This episode is brought to you in part by Wholehearted Love, a new book by Caleb and Stephanie Rouse. Overcome the barriers that hold you back in your relationships with God and with others and delight in feeling safe, seen, and loved with Wholehearted Love. For more information, go to Tyndale.com. Welcome to The Cartographers, where we map the changing cultural landscape for 21st century Christians. Expect thoughtful conversations with hosts Bryce Hales and Ashley Hales, a pastor and a PhD, along with our guests to help you navigate a changing cultural landscape. Welcome back to The Cartographers, where we are helping Christian leaders map the 21st century cultural landscape. And we're really excited today because we have with us Kurt Thompson. He's a psychiatrist, author. He hosts the Being Known podcast, and he's the author of lots of books. He weaves together an understanding of interpersonal neurobiology and a Christian view of what it means to be human, to educate, encourage, and really help others as they seek to fulfill their intrinsic desire to feel known, valued, and connected. Today, we're talking with Kurt about his book, The Deepest Place, Suffering and the Formation of Hope. So Kurt, we appreciate you being here. We've enjoyed having you on in the past, and we're excited to dig into this topic. Ashley and Bryce, it's great to be back. Thank you so much. Uh, It was a joy before, and again, as I said uh, before, it's um, really humbling to be invited, and I'm thrilled to be able to be in conversation with you today. Thanks, Kurt. Um, we're having a series of conversations right now on our podcast really about about worship. We're calling this Pulling Back the Curtain. And what we're wanting to do is talk about the way that Christian worship forms us, uh, the formational reality. So often we tend to talk about and think about worship in, in purely functional uh, ways. And, and so, um, a lot of your work is about formation. And so curious to talk with you about the intersection of formation and worship and even the formation of hope and suffering. Um, in, in so many ways, the, the formational view of Christian worship is about emphasizing the way over time, worship has the power to transform us. God uses uh, even the liturgy and worship, but other things to transform our characters, shape our identities, rather than simply kind of having conversations about, you know, stylistic choices or what did I learn coming out of a, a, a worship service or experience. Um, so uh, maybe you could just kind of give us a, a, a big picture answer to the question. Ha- talk to us about about formation, uh, about how your work is kind of deeply uh, rooted in the concept of formation, and how would you maybe help us clarify uh, a difference in approach between a, a formational and a functional approach to, to meaning making? Yeah. Well, first of all, I... I... Dang, I am thrilled to be talking about this. This is <laughs> this is just like wow. Wow. Yeah. I'm just okay. Well, so are we. So, so thanks. Um, <laughs> yeah. Well, so I think I think one thing that that strikes me uh, as, that emerges for me as you first asked that price is um, what comes to me is uh, the psalm where where we are reminded that 
Um, it is he, Psalm 100, it is he who has made us and not we ourselves. Like I, I haven't made myself. I am a creature. I think about the first lines in Jeremiah. Before I formed you, I knew you. I formed. That we are creatures who are formed. Now, it's important, I think, for us to say is that formation is not a question of if. It's a question of what. What is forming us? We are creatures who are being formed. Uh, contrary to the illusion that has been created by 500 years of modernity and post-enlightenment that would have me believing that I am the master of my destiny and I create and I am in charge of myself and of the world around me and so forth and so on. And I decide how I am, like I am forming myself. Uh, That is an utter illusion. Uh, I can tell you that uh, there are forces in the world almost an infinite number and array of them that are far bigger and badder than me that are forming me. Google, Amazon, Apple, you name it. Um, and what's, what, what, what my agency, what my agency in this process is the degree to which I am going to be willing to submit to that which I long to be formed by. And I can either submit passively to all the forces in the world that are just going to be naturally in the business of forming me into a disintegrating person. This is what evil wants. Or I can submit, I can surrender to the king and to that process. And the beauty about surrendering to the king is that he's the only formational process, he's the only formational person in the world who in the process of forming me is not going to exploit me, is not going to take advantage of me, is not going to ruin me, is not going to use me for his own purposes in ways that are only about him and not also about me. And so uh, this notion of formation is a question of what we do in the, in the work that we do in psychotherapy. It's what we do in pastoral work. It's what we're doing all the time. The question is, into whose image am I being formed at any given moment of my day? And when it comes then to worship, one of the, one of the beautiful things about, about this is that, again, uh, at least I, I grew up being trained not so much explicitly but implicitly, being trained in the church uh, with this notion that worship is a primarily a one-direction operation. It is the thing that I am doing. I am directing my attention toward God in any number of different ways, shapes, and forms, whether that's through song, whether that's through prayer, whether that's through praise, a range of different things in which I am worshiping God. And that is certainly true. But I think that if we only see it in that way, and and, and then and there and so therefore I can all I can also imagine that my I'm being formed by this thing that I am doing. And what I want, and, and the thing is, is that that, that uh, it's tempting to imagine that that's the primary thing that's happening. And what I would want to invite us to consider is that all of that is being done in response to a God who has come and who is wildly out of his mind crazy about us. And whose glory, as John's gospel largely points out, whose glory, the glory of a son of a father, 
is the glory of God's utter delight in having made us and his delight in our delighting in his delight in us. And so worship is not primarily first a thing that I am told that I must do because I am told to do it. I am doing it as a response to my allowing myself to be receptive to the beauty of God that has come for me, that has come for us, and whose intention is to draw draw us into becoming like him. And who wouldn't want I mean, how, how, how other could I respond to that kind of utter delight once I get past my incredulity at his delight in me? Once I get past this, how could I not say, no, we have to sing another song. No, we have to say one more word of praise. We, like, how can you not do this? Well, it's easy for me to not do this if I come to church with my worry about all the things that I have to do when I get back home from church because I do not yet believe that the God that I'm coming to worship is mad about me, not mad at me. And, uh, and in that way, this, this worship is a two-way street that necessarily, if I am willing to not just do it there, but do it there for the purpose of allowing it to embed itself in me so that I may take it with me wherever I go and thus form me not just in the time that I am in that place of worship, but that time becomes a launch place for me to be an outpost of worship even as I go into the rest of my day. That was a long-winded answer. Let's, let's I, close I, I in prayer. <laughs> let's just close in prayer. That was, that was fantastic. <laughs> but, okay, wow. so Kurt, I think, you know, as we kind of, pivot a little to talk about your book, you're talking about suffering, right? Which we experience after, you know, maybe even in the worship service, who knows? But, um, you know, you write about um, this idea of a hospitality towards suffering. And you write that for people who are serious about durable, durable transformation, they eventually develop a very different relationship with suffering than kind of an allergic one or one where we're running to just to cope or to numb it. Um, can you help us understand this idea of durable transformation and how come suffering is necessary there? Well, I think, I think a couple of things. I think, um, I think th- so there, are, I think it's uh, a number of reflections that all kind of converge at the same point rather than operating linearly like one right after the other. One is that, you know, uh, to be human is to suffer. Uh, for our listeners, uh, if it's not happening now, it's coming for you in some way, shape, or form. And for many of us, uh, suffering has already taken up residence within us, but we do a lot to try to avoid paying attention to it. We ignore it. We hide from it. We we anesthetize ourselves from it. There are all kinds of things that we do. And the Christian story, the biblical narrative, is the only story on the planet that actually honors suffering. It doesn't say it's good when God's not saying, oh, this is a really great idea I have. This is how we'll get people's attention. This is, it's not that it's a good thing, but it's, it, is a, it is a way for us to say like suffering is, of course, our response 
to a world as beautiful as ours is that has gone so off the rails. It's kind of like the inflammatory response. I mean, you know, you sprain your ankle. Nobody likes a swollen ankle. It's painful. It's red. It's, it's, it's all the things that are awful about it, but it is the body's response to an injury. Suffering is our natural inclination, the, these longings that we, we know this is not the way this is supposed to be. Whether it's a medical malady, a physical malady, whether it's an emotional or psychological malady, whether it's a relational malady, this is not a good thing. And yet, even that thing, God is in the business of redeeming. This is what the biblical narrative tells us. God honors this. God honors our suffering. He doesn't look at our suffering and disdain it. He comes and joins us in it and says, this is really hard, even hard unto death, even hard unto a torturous, crucifying death. What y'all want to do to each other, I'm going to come and join you in this, and then I'm going to take you out the other side. And this way of honoring suffering enables us to practice when we say that we want to be hospitable to it when we want to create space for it, we want to say that this, the, this we, we talked about suffering as being how I respond to my pain over time. Um, if my response is to disdain it, if my response is to rage against it, if my response is to ignore it, as opposed to my response being to be present to it, not denying it, but then also be aware that Jesus has come to join me in this. And, you know, we can, as Christians, we can talk about this and our listeners can hear this and they're thinking like, yeah, that's great theology. That's a great, like, I have no idea what you're talking about. And this is why in, in the book, we, we, we try to, to pay the attention to the, like what Paul, when Paul writes about this, that eventually gets to suffering that leads to perseverance and character and hope. He doesn't begin that passage with suffering. He begins with something else. He begins with what it means for us to be deeply connected members of Jesus' body through trusting relationships. That's what we call faith. Through this notion of coming to terms that we are at peace with God, which most of us who don't think we're at war with God actually have parts of us that have still believe, still believe we're at war with God. We just don't know that. And this notion of glory, again, that we've talked about already, this notion that the glory that he writes about there, when we think about it in John's gospel's terms, this glory that he boasts in the hope of God's glory, that he boasts in the hope that God's delight in him, God's power, God's beauty, God's awesomeness is not the only element. It's also this coming of God to say, I can't believe I get to be your God over and over and over again. And if this is the one who has come to me to say, I'm going to be with you, I'm not leaving the room in my pain, it gives me a very different sense of what it means to be in pain. In our, um, we have this work that we do in confessional communities in our, in our practice in these groups that have uh, continued to flourish and create space for people to experience healing and transformation. And, and one of the, I remember one of the things that was a prompting to that finally like tipped the scales. And I started to, to, to work on this book was, you know, um, one of our members that has been doing work for a number of years and has been really 
working at transformation and, you know, following Jesus. And this is a person whose life is not anything like it was two decades ago. He's been working, 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 working on this, following hard after the king. And something happened in the recent time around, right before I started to write the book, something happened in which she came in one time to one of these, to, to one of our groups, and she said, I'm just sick of it. Why is it that after 20 years of working on this one particular thing in her family of origin, you know, you know how it is that we, we kind of think that at some point there are going to be certain people in our families that they're just going to like stop behaving badly. Like they'll get old enough that they'll stop or somehow they'll learn enough or somebody else is going to get mad enough to tell them to quit it and they'll quit it and everything will be better. And it's like, you know, parents can grow into old people and still behave badly. And they just compete, continue to repeat really bad behavior. And this was an experience for her, even though she's worked through these. And our, and our listeners, I'm sure there are many who have experiences in which we've worked hard at things. Why does this thing still on occasion catch me off guard? Why do I still find old parts of me that I thought were healed or regenerated? How in the world does that come up again? And we would say because, number one, evil is not about to go quietly into the night. And part of our suffering includes our awareness that as we continue to follow after the king and we are not completely healed, we will be tempted to think that we are only okay if we no longer have any pain. Even regarding the same thing I have been working on year after year after year after year. I'll never forget one of my patients who was in his 25th year of sobriety from alcoholism. And his commitment to naming that he is an alcoholic. And he said, like, the only difference between me, the only thing that stands between me and disaster is one drink. And there would still be times when he would notice his cravings, wanting to come back into the room. And what set him apart from others was not that he no longer had cravings, but that he had become hospitable to his cravings. And by hospitable saying, oh, something's going on here. Something's going on here. I become hospitable to this part that is hard for me. This pain that is inviting me into a space for me to continually be curious about and also call on the presence of others to be present with me as I am still contending with this pain that does not go away from me. St. Paul with his thorn, Job with his boils. Many of our listeners with parts of their stories, be that medical and physical or psychological and emotional and relational, that feel like, you know, this is a marriage that is not soon going to connect, going to correct itself. This is my son who is not going to stop using fentanyl. This is my cancer that goes away and comes back and goes away and comes back. And I don't know what to do about that. This is my, these are my parents who, though they age, continue to treat me like I don't exist. All the things for which the body of Jesus, becoming the presence of Jesus, is part of how we respond to this and so therefore allow our trans allow our suffering itself to be transformed. Uh, Kurt, I want to sort of circle back to what you said a minute ago. Um, you're talking about suffering almost being... Um, I don't know if inevitable, but I think you said that suffering is is what is required or is the natural outcome of what happens if we live in a glorious world that has gone so badly wrong. And I, I think that's such a different 
perspective than the one we are used to, um, where we, we think that we shouldn't have to deal with suffering. And um, I've, I've been reading, our listeners will probably remember, I, I mentioned this in our last episode, but I'm, I'm working slowly through Charles Taylor's um, massive book on um, the secular age. And one of the things he says in there that just kind of struck me is that living in a secular world we are we're means that we're living in a world where we expect meaning to be constructed entirely in terms of this world and our experience in this world and and so he says that fundamentally for secular people suffering can have no meaning or purpose which is fundamentally different than people who understand meaning and purpose with reference to the transcendent um and so one of the things that I have just, I think, re realizing pastorally, but just as an observer of the world that we live in, is that so many people today, including so many Christians today, think that suffering is something that we should just re reject at like a principial level. We should run away from it. And we don't imagine any place for suffering uh, in our in our you know in our growth as a, as a as a possible that good would come out of it, and and so I'm curious if you could just maybe help us think through how does even the way we sort of expect or imagine a place for or a la or no place for suffering how does how does our imagination our expectations affect the actual experience of suffering. Well, I, and I think Taylor's work, um, as as you're aware, has um, informed deeply many, many people, myself not the least. Um, I mean, one of the things I would say uh, that is that it's important for us to recognize. You know, um, uh, I'm 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 going to exit off of our interstate to a small gas station. I'll come back onto the interstate in just a second. Um, but, you know, one of the things that has happened over the last 30 years, 40 years, is the ever uh, thickening of a manual that we call the DSM, Diagnostic and Statistical Manual for Mental Disorders. It is the American Psychiatric Association's kind of Bible for psychiatric disorders. And it has expanded geometrically in terms of the number of disorders that are named and so forth and so on. And a reasonable question that you know, people would ask is, well, is it true that there are in fact that many more disorders in the world now than there were 40 years ago? And I think uh, the answer to that plainly is no. Uh, although we have an infinite, because we are humans, we have an infinite array of ways of demonstrating our symptom packages, of demonstrating ways in which we are reacting. I mean, fundamentally, to wanting to live the way we want to live and not the way we were made to live. In other words, there's pretty much one way to land an airplane on a runway, but there are almost an infinite way number of ways to land a plane on a runway badly. <laughs> <laughs> and so in the same way, there is a way for us to live as humans, but there is an ever-growing number of ways for us to live badly as humans. And the, the way that we name those things are taking up residence in our DSM. And, and, and I, I say that because 
we would see, you know, the researchers would say, oh my gosh, no, that we have these new things that are showing up. And yet what we would also say is the fact that that's how a researcher perceives the world as it is emerging says something about what the, what the researchers are assuming the world to be about in the first place. If that makes sense. And so what we have is also a world that has formed us, especially in the last 500 years, where you have the advances of science, where you have the advances of technology, where you have the advances that teach us. I mean, life is so much more convenient than it was even 50 years ago, let alone 200 years ago. And so we have been formed into people who believe that we should not suffer. A first century Palestinian would not believe this. A fifth century European would not believe this. A 10th century European would not believe this. But we believe this, and it's not just because we happen to happen to believe it. We have been formed to think in this way. And so it also is a way of thinking about the world and a set of assumptions that we make about the world that are categorically counter to the reality of the material world. We are people who suffer. Suffering is part of what it means to be human. It is not a thing that shouldn't be here. It is a thing that is here, kind of like runny noses. It is a thing that is here. Now, because of our advancements, we can say there are certain things that we can demonstrate intervention for. I can intervene on a lot of things that 150 years ago I couldn't intervene with. The question is, what do I do about the things that I can't intervene with? Well, we come up with all kinds of new things that we can do. We can say, I'm going to grant physician-assisted suicide. I'm going to grant all kinds of things in my technology. Like I, I now want AI to create a new brand new me for me in the future that so, so that I will never die because I can't, because I don't want to suffer. I don't want, I'm trying to check, you know, I'm trying to outrun death. All these things that we do to outrun death. And so this notion that like what I do about suffering, it's important for me to recognize that there are forces that are forming me, forming us to believe that suffering shouldn't be the case, just as Taylor has pointed out. This is not the biblical narrative. The biblical narrative looks humanity square in the face and says, we are a people who suffer. And there will be certain things that we can do. I mean, like, look, if you're Lazarus, I mean, seriously? Like you get to die twice? Like who like who wants to do this? I mean, like, like we think this is all fun and games. And if I'm Laz and I'm coming out of the tomb, and it's all great. And he's like, crap. Like now I got to, some, at some point I'm going to get to do this. I'm going to get sick again. I'm like, I thought I was over with that. And so it's easy for us to imagine that suffering is only bad because I have also imagined that I am master of my own destiny. And when the material world confronts me with the reality that is different than the one I imagine that I'm living in, I cannot tolerate it. And so I have to tell a different story about the suffering. Instead of allowing my God to join me in the world that he has made as it actually is, and watch and, and allow me to watch him transform my suffering, even as that suffering transforms me. 
I have no idea if that's what we should be talking about, but that's where I went. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, BOW offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. Help us think practically for a second, because I think, you know, as we talk about all of these things, we talk about transcendence and the glory of God and that, you know, the church really is this kind of alternate countercultural reality of a God who is mad about us in the best way, not mad at us. You know, as we think about all of those things, I could probably hear listeners going, that's super cool, right? But like, how do I get that in my body? And you talk a lot about that in terms of community and in in embodied ways of knowing and naming. Um, Walk us through, what does it look like maybe in your life in a day to not be formed by Amazon or, you know, that the the story that you are your own and you belong to yourself and that you can outrun death. What does it look like practically? So we can begin to imagine it uh, on the ground a little bit. Right. Well, I, I think um, I, I would I, I would say to our listeners, part of the challenge is uh, that even even our listeners and Ashley, in response to your question, uh, most of our listeners are uh, have been formed, myself included have been formed to anticipate that I will provide an answer to your question that will enable them to appropriate the answer to your question in three easy steps, and it will be taken care of by this time tomorrow. (laughs) Right. That I I should plan to answer your question by committing the rest of my life on this earth to practicing it is not the answer I want to hear. So here's the first thing that here's the here's the first this is a little survey question that we can ask as we enter into a practical application of this. The first survey question would be how many times does do any of our listeners over the course of a day look at the supercomputer that they carry around in their pocket or in their purse? How many times? And how much time in the course of the number of times that you look at it do you think about it even when you're not looking at it? And what's the total amount of time that you have spent practicing looking at your supercomputer, your phone, between the time that you wake up and the time that you go to bed. Now let's compare. Um, how many times over the course of that same day do you um, access and look at anything from the scriptures? The first chapter of Ephesians. How many times do you get the first chapter of Ephesians out? And once again, I'm going to look at the first 10 verses. I'm, just, I'm going to look at that for 30 seconds over the course of my day. 
whichever one is the one that you were spending more time with is the thing that is forming you. And so that's the first thing that I'm just going to say is that unless we are willing to place our bodies in the path that allows us to be formed in the way that we claim we want to be formed, it's not going to happen. And I'm not like, and, and like, I, I'm not like discouraged about this. I'm like, it's pretty simple and it's extraordinarily difficult because Apple needs you to look at its phone. It needs, it, it, it is, these are planned addictive cycles that are built into the system. This is what Paul means when he refers to principalities and powers. Okay. I'm not a Luddite. However, what I want to say is the question then become in my day-to-day life, and I, and I, I say, like, I'm imperfect at this. Like, I'm the chief among sinners. But I can't get away from the material, from the world the way it really is either. So here's what I would say. Uh, Tuesday mornings, every Tuesday morning, for uh, 75 minutes, uh, I meet with three other guys and have been for the last 25 years for confession and prayer because I can't afford for there to be any part of my sensing, imaging, feeling, thinking brain to be not known. I can't afford for it for there to be any part of it that goes wandering off on its own because the minute I do, I'm a dead man. And so that's one part. We then have a confessional community that meets once a week. That's a, a our, our own kind of like covenant group of four of three to four couples. We, you know, it's it's a matter of I, I I work in a practice where my partner Courtney Morrison we are having conversations on a weekly basis in which we're not talking about deeply personal things, but there's nothing about the practice that we know that involves our inner life that we're not talking about. The point being that. My task is to put myself in a position in which I'm being deeply known by others so that I am not by myself with the parts of me that evil will want to exploit. That also means that there will be parts of me, and, and I also see a spiritual director. I live with a spiritual director once a month. I'm, I'm, I, I need to have my life exposed to others who can welcome parts of me into the room that I either want to hide or that I'm ashamed of. In order for those parts to be continually on the path of healing, in order for me then to be recommissioned to doing the hard work of forgiveness, the hard work of risk-taking, the hard work of service, the hard work of justice-keeping, the hard work of working with people that are hard for me to work with, all the things that we have to do to become outposts of beauty and goodness in the world. But that begins with a posture that been just bringing us full circle, Bryce, but it begins with a posture that, that, that it's a posture that begins with me responding to a God who is loving me. But that response is something that I sense and image in those embodied encounters with people on a regular basis, in that regular encounter with the text that we have to be immersed in, in that regular encounter with whatever else it is that we are exposing ourselves to in order to be formed in the image of the king. This does not mean that we all need to move into convents or into monasteries, although it's tempting. But what it does mean is that we have to take seriously how we are in our embodied lives, submitting ourselves to those things, the likenesses of which we want to become. So, Kurt, this is such a... um 
helpful and I, I think fascinating um, conversation. And I'm trying to think of how I want to ask this. I, I, I sort of, I feel like I'm acutely aware that the three of us could have this conversation for a long time. And, and that might reveal some uniquenesses about our temperaments or, or proclivities or something like that, that, that other people are like, okay, that's great. I don't, um, I'm not that thoughtful or something like that. In some ways, I, I want to ask the question of like, how do, how do we um, help people when there are plenty who are willing to provide the three-step practical answer to uh, much more profound and complex questions? Um, and, and maybe just kind of what, what is the role of, of the church, the community of the church um, in its ordinary kind of week in, week out existence? How, how do we help folks see the, the, the importance, the relevance of the worshiping life of God's people? Um, even, even um, I mean, I think one of the things that I'm aware of and, and I don't really, honestly, if I'm honest, I don't know what to do with this as a pastor. Uh, there, are, there are people in our congregations who um, they, they love Jesus. They, um, you know, they're somewhat sporadically uh, uh, attending uh, church involved in, in maybe a community group, something like this. But, and, and yet I think if they were honest would say, yeah, this is fine, but the place that I really find my spiritual connection is, you know, maybe that's in some other context, in some other group, in some other place that I'm serving. Um, I, I don't know if that even makes sense, how those things hold together. But um, I guess what yeah. I'm wanting to get yeah. at is how yeah. do we... Yeah. Like not, it's not feasible for everybody to be involved in a confessional community, as as in, incredible as that would be. Um, what are some practical ways to, to take some first steps? I think there's a reason why Jesus used metaphors like uh, "pick up your cross," like the gate and the path are narrow. Uh, I think it's significant that when the rich young ruler left, Jesus didn't chase him. I think it's significant that after the resurrection, now I don't know, we don't, we don't, I don't know about this, but at least in the gospels, we don't have a record of Jesus paying visits to either the high priest, to Pilate, to Herod. Although I think that would have been a cool maneuver on his part if he had. (laughs) Can you imagine being in Pilate's bedroom at like Six in the morning, <laughs> man. You t- you talk about messing somebody's bedclothes. I'll, I'll tell you what that that would have been that problematic. But but we don't have a record. Like, why wouldn't Jesus do that? Like, I, if I'm Jesus, like this is exactly what I would do. Like, what do you think about me now? There is a way in which we are. Uh, I think we 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 read the Gospels and we find that Jesus took seriously those people who took him seriously and those who did not, it doesn't appear that he did a whole lot to try to go convince them otherwise. And I think this is a really difficult thing for us, having been formed in the current culture in which everybody gets a trophy, 
in which everybody, from an egalitarian standpoint, everybody should have equal access to all the things and so forth and so on. And the reality is it just doesn't happen that way. And the reality is when Jesus confronts people and they walk away, he's basically saying, I'm going to take you as seriously as you're willing to take yourself, but I can't take, I'm not able to work with somebody who's not willing to be in the game with me. He wants people to be in the game. And so when we say it's not feasible for everyone to be in a confessional community, I would wonder, well, what do we mean by that? Well, I, I don't know what that, I don't know what that means. It's not feasible. I mean, I, I, I know what we could, you're right. We could talk about this for a long time about what that means. But what I'm saying is that when we talk about the church, I, I think we can't talk about the church without first talking about pastors. Because who leads churches? Pastors, elders lead churches. And I would be curious to know, you know, I, I say that pastors, I don't, I don't know of anybody who has a harder job in the world than a pastor. Because why? First of all, nobody takes care of them. You, you know, I ask, a pa- I ask how many pastors do I ask? Whose job is it to take care of you? They look at me like I have two heads. Because we can't give what we don't have. And so if I have a pastor or a group of pastors who do not know what it means to be fully known, they are going to be doing work in which what they're primarily doing is paying attention to benchmarks. Are we doing this well enough? Do we have enough people in the seats? Do we have all the things that are, you know, how are we, all the, we're, we're measuring things and we're not paying that much attention to the question of like, am I becoming a person of greater love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and all the rest? It's hard for me to do that when I am not being deeply cared for. And so at some point, how am I going to continue to preach about that? If I'm not having someone care for me in a way that enables me as the leader to do this. And so I think, you know, one of the things that we found, we've had the opportunity to work with a number of pastors whose own ministries begin to be shaped by this because what they begin to see is that if once they taste this, once they have the sense of being loved and cared for in this way, they begin to see that this is what they want for their congregants. And this is what they ask for, for their congregants. And some of their congregants want the three-step easy way out and to me, this is, this is not unlike how many of us want the gospel to be. I don't want to have to work at this. I don't want the gate or the path to be narrow. I don't want it to be a cross. I want it to be a Tesla that I pick up. This is the way my world is forming me to be. Now, I, I, I say this, like, of course, we aren't consciously thinking this. I want to be very clear. We're talking about people who really, really, who, who would say they want to follow Jesus. But their bodies and what they do most of the time of most of their day is not being formed by the gospel. It's being formed by the world. And for them to do the work that is required to become a professional human being, a person of living, breathing, forgiveness, fruit of the Spirit, Sermon on the Mount, and so forth, those are people who are going to have to, who are going to be willing to submit themselves to the kind of rigor that is required for that kind of life to emerge. And as church leaders, if I am being cared for in such a way that I begin to do this, I will know that this is really, really hard work. And that there is going to be very little I'm going to offer 
that is a three-step process to any of my parishioners that is going to get them to become the kind of people who are going to be able to tolerate the kingdom of God when it shows up in its fullness. I was listening to Dallas Willard uh, talk a long time ago. He's at a conference in his kind of Missouri drawl, and he said, uh, God will welcome and let anyone into his heaven who can take it. I actually just read an article on this like last week referencing that. And, and it was so fascinating because it descended into, uh, it, uh, was in a conversation over email and it sort of descended into theological analysis of if that's a proper formulation of soteriology or something like that. And I think that's clearly not what he was talking about there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. But I think, I think the issue is, um, and, and, and this is, uh, this is not a sense in which we are kind of hierarchically stratifying people. But you know, you do you do have echoes in the scriptures. We have these echoes uh, in the New Testament letters of works that are judged according to their durability. And we're like, I don't, you know, I, I like, I'm, I'm, I am a, I'm a liberal, democratic, egalitarian. I didn't know that God did that. <laughs> yeah. hmm. And 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 I think, but I think the point is not just that, like, are my works stubble and hay or gold and platinum and whatever, but am I stubble and hay or gold and platinum and whatever? Have I become the kind of person? who can tolerate the grandeur of heaven when it shows up? Am I the kind of person who has become committed to practicing allowing myself to be loved in such a way that when I then walk into some other room, everybody else only ever knows that I'm coming to love them because I'm being loved in my own broken places, in my own suffering, as deeply as I'm allowing myself to be loved. If we are not creating space in our churches for this to take place, for us to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, our faith runs the risk of being boiled down, yes, to the creeds and to taking the Eucharist and getting up and leaving the church and immediately submitting ourselves to the world and what it will do to form us. I wasn't expecting to go that direction, but there we go. When there is so much, and maybe we could think about trying to pull all the disparate, really rich threads that we've already touched on, but you know, when there is so much, as you're saying, Kurt, that forms us away from the hard and beautiful story of Christ, and it is easier to numb or distract or not, you know, as you were sharing the story and you do throughout your book of many people who are doing that very hard work. Um, that's tiresome. What hope might you have for someone who's really scared to take some of those first steps towards actually betting their life and their practices and their formation and putting down their phone um, and choosing to be formed by scripture when most of the time we don't honestly believe that it's true and it would be much easier to drive the Tesla 
and to think about our investments than to count the cost of following Christ. Totally. And like I said, like I'm the chief among sinners. I'm I'm the chief among sinners. I'm not. I do I do yeah. Um well the first thing I would say is uh that if you're afraid it means you have a pulse. It means you're alive. Uh you're not afraid because you're stupid. You're not afraid because you're a coward. You're not afraid because you haven't worked hard enough. You're not afraid. You're afraid because evil wants to devour you. You're afraid because you've been formed by a system in your family of origin and by the world, the world, the flesh, and the devil. We've been formed by systems that have trained us to believe that if we surrender to the king, the king is going gonna, is gonna to treat us like a tyrant. And I would want to say I, I, that, that we are afraid. I want to say, of course you are. Of course you are. Yep. And there's no shame in that. And I would want to say, yep, this is frightening. Let's do this together. Let's do this together. And you might say, well, I, I don't have someone who will do this with me. To which I would say, then I want you to find someone. Um, one of the most common questions I am asked regarding the formation and working through of a, of a confessional community is, where can I find one? Where can I find one of these? And uh, my response, uh, I mean, the, there, there, there are ways to find them through our nonprofit and ways to find them in our practice and so forth. But for many people, uh, my response is, this is not something that you find. This is something you, that you, with great fear and trembling and great vulnerability, practice forming. You go make it happen. And you're like, I don't know how to do that. I, this, 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 fri- this scares the living daylights out of me. To which I would say, and you know, Yes, it does. I and and I'm like again. It's not because you're weak, or you're crazy, or low. It is because you are a human being. And I would also say to you, what Paul Borgman said, the author of the book called Genesis: The Story We Haven't Heard, when he writes about the question of how is it? Who knows how many people God asked to go with him from Mesopotamia to Canaan? before he finally found somebody in Abraham who said, yes, I'll go. We don't know because we don't have a story about it. But we know that when we get to Jesus, the same question is asked. How many people before Peter, James, and John did he ask to follow him who said, no, we know there were others. I got to go bury my dad. I've got to go check out the piece of land that I just bought. I've got all kinds of reasons for like, no, 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 no. God the Father, Jesus the Son, knows exactly how hard it is to ask people to come with them to do the work of creating beauty and goodness in the world. This is hard work, and I can imagine Jesus, if he was standing next to you, he would say, this is exactly what it's like for you to know what it's like for me to be me. I'm so grateful that I'm now even less alone than I was 10 minutes ago. I'm going to come with you and we're going to try this together, which means we ask one person, would you come together and let's begin to tell our stories to each other? In the soul of desire, we talk about this, about there's you know, ways for doing that. There are other, for, you know, other ways that you can have access to learning how to do this. But the first person and the second person and the third may say no, and we keep praying and we keep asking. In the same way that many people in the texts 
have prayed for long years for things that we work to then do, wanting God to. And, you know, the scriptures are replete with those reminders that when we seek for God, like we're going to find him because he's going to come running. But Jesus also made it very plain that he wants people who are serious about him. He doesn't want to spoon feed people. He wants people who are in the game. He doesn't need them. He does not need us to play the game perfectly. He's not worried about the bad passes we're going to make or the double dribbles. He's not worried about this. What he wants is that when we make mistakes, we're going to do what we need to do to make up for that and that we are in the game. And that takes time, effort, and practice. And if we are willing to do that faithfully, our experience has been that just has been just as it has been the experience of many in the story of the scriptures, God is quick in the business to honor this. Because the very asking, the very process of asking is formational. It is taking a step that is making the assumption, I am, it is an act of trust that is vulnerable, that is hard to do. And the very act of doing it is an act that in which I'm saying to myself, I am okay. I am okay to take this risk. It is in the not taking the risk that we reinforce the notion and the story that I believe about myself, which is I don't have what it takes. And that's not how we've been made. We have been made for the purpose in the new heaven and earth to rule the world as daughters and sons of God, kings and queens on this earth. And we best get used to practicing that for when that time shows up. Kurt, thank you so much. Uh, we would love to continue talking, but uh, we need to let you go and let our let our listeners continue with the rest of their uh, days. And, uh, we, yeah, this has just been such a rich conversation and, um, I I'm so grateful for your work, but even for the, for the way and just your willingness to talk to us today vulnerably, uh, it begins to, uh, stir and awaken that hope in, in me. And, uh, so I'm just so thankful for the time that you've spent with us today. Thank you very much. Well, you're very welcome. And, um, Thanks again. I guess, as I said before, uh, uh, it's extraordinarily humbling um, to be invited to be on uh, to on on your podcast, and um, uh, I'm I'm so grateful to be in the room with two other people who know that it's hard to follow the King, and uh, and so we do it together uh, so that we can have our hope reinforced. So I'm just really grateful to be here with the two of you. So thank you. Yeah. Thanks, Kurt. We want to leave you with something fun in each episode in the series. So we asked our favorite AI bot to think about titling this series. How would AI encourage us to pursue worship and formation? And we got some crazy options. And this week, here's just one. Dive deep. Rise high. Join the worship revolution for personal and global formation. Thanks for listening to The Cartographers. Please take a minute to rate and review the show wherever you listen to your podcasts. 
It takes just a second of your time and helps others find the cartographers so that we can all begin mapping and charting the 21st century cultural landscape for Christian leaders. 